the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Well, today we're going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Pastor Andy McQuitty. He's the author of The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith in a Goliath World. And don't we need that kind of help? How did he um, build his um, his uh, courage. Well, Kate Middleton and Prince William proudly held their new bundle of joy as the couple left the hospital after welcoming a baby boy on Monday. Prince William wearing a simple blue suit and the Duchess of Cambridge wearing a red dress with a white lace collar. I'm sure you wanted to know. They waved at the hordes of media, royal watchers, as they left the uh, uh, the wing of the hospital where she had uh, had the little boy who's now part of the royal family. But I, uh, well, that's exciting. I wanted to draw your attention to another uh, birth that took place, not today, but on Friday. That was the birth of Clark Hilton. Yes, that pink little baby boy was thrust into the world, uh, and his birthday was this last Friday. Now, I was out um, of the office, and so I wanted to take a moment and acknowledge the birthday of Clark Hilton, who was just frightened by James, who entered the room (laughs) with with the cake and a candle in it. You didn't know he was in the room. (laughs) The look on your face and to watch you jump was pretty priceless. But I just wanted to take a moment and acknowledge your birthday, which I missed. Uh, But this is a belated expression of gratitude for your birth and uh, glad to have you here. Happy birthday, Clark Hilton. He's now blown out the candle and can go about his business. Anyway, it's a pleasure to work with you, Clark. And uh, just wanted to say happy birthday. All right. That whole Kate Middleton thing, that was just kind of a ruse to cleverly move into the more important birth that took place in the month of April, and that would be the birth of Clark Hilton. Who's, what are you, 25, 30? What it would... I was just going to say that on your, um, on your sheet here, it says, <laughs> Kate Middleton, Prince William, welcome baby boy, and in parentheses it says Clark. And so I, I didn't think they had named the child yet. No, they have not. Oh, maybe they've named it after me. Or they named, they gave it the same name. Well, they should have, but I, no, they haven't, they haven't named it the child yet. No, no. So, no, that was just a reminder that that's what was going to happen. Yeah, I need to write it down because who knows where I would have ended up. Um, Anyway, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you for the cake. Well, we just learned um, moments ago that former President George Herbert Walker Bush has been hospitalized. He apparently contracted an infection, according to a spokesman, um, and it's uh, made its way into his blood. The announcement of the hospitalization comes, of course, just days after Mrs. Bush uh, was laid to rest. That was on Saturday. She died at age 92. And to watch him navigate that event from his wheelchair was really something to behold. President Bush, we're being told, was admitted to Houston Methodist Hospital yesterday morning after contracting an infection that spread to his blood. That's according to Jim McGrath, who is the Bush spokesman uh, speaking uh, today. He is responding to treatment and appears to be recovering. We will issue additional updates as events warrant. So keep the uh, Bush family in your prayers. I have to admit, uh, several of us 
uh, kind of thought when uh, Mrs. Bush goes uh, goes home to be with the Lord. We wondered how long her husband of some many, many decades, 73 years, would uh, would languish uh, in her wake. So just pray for uh, the former president. Well, some of the developing stories, President Trump uh, claimed uh, vindication after fired FBI Director James Comey's memos were released, tweeting that they show no collusion and no obstruction. Uh, Comey's released memos detailed doubts the former FBI director had about reports on Russia. Trump, the dossier, revealed that the president had concerns about former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn as well. And the Justice Department's internal watchdog is sending a criminal referral for fired FBI Director, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe to the Federal Prosecutor's Office in Washington, D.C. And Fresno States is scrambling to keep donors after an English professor bashed Barbara Bush following the former first lady's death on Tuesday. Wow. Well, the four people killed in Sunday shooting in a Tennessee Waffle House are identified as authorities continued um, their effort to try to get to the bottom of uh, what happened. They've now have the gunman in custody. And the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is scheduled to vote uh, on CIA Director Mike Pompeo. They have voted and somehow he passed. We'll tell you more about that. He's the nominee, the president's nominee to be secretary of state. Uh, early signs pointed to the panel not endorsing the president's nominee. We'll tell you what actually happened. And President Trump uh, will urge North Korea to dismantle its nuclear weapons uh, at his summit with Kim Jong-un and is not willing to lift sanctions for the mere freezing of its nuclear missile tests, according to one report. Before his visit to Washington, D.C. this week, French President Emmanuel Macron, he insisted that he has a strong relationship with Donald Trump, but appears to warn against his aggressive stance on international trade and Iran and more. They disagree on a lot of issues, but somehow have forged a relationship. The first couple and uh, the president of France and his wife are now uh, having dinner together in his uh, uh, his maybe it's dinner, lunch. I'm not sure what time it is. I guess it would be dinner at this point. There will be a state dinner for the uh, French president. Prince William's wife, as I mentioned, the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, has had a son. We'll uh, find out what that name will be at some point, but they have yet to announce the naming of this. I think he's the sixth in line. Well, President Trump uh, late Thursday tweeted that the newly released memos written by former FBI Director James Comey show clearly no collusion with Russia in 2016 and no obstruction into the investigation, writing that James Comey memos just uh, out show clearly that there was no collusion. Also, he leaked classified information. Wow. Will the witch hunt continue? Trump tweeted the memos, which were written by Comey about his interaction with Trump, prove that the fired FBI director never felt obstructed, GOP lawmakers said. Many Democrats claim that Trump tried to hold up the FBI's investigation into alleged collusion leading up to the election in 2016. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlatte, House Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy, and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez uh, said in a joint statement that Comey's memos show the president made clear he wanted allegations of collusion coordination and conspiracy between his campaign and Russia fully investigated. The memos also made clear the cloud President Bush wanted lifted was not the Russian interference in the 2016 election cloud. Rather, it was the salacious, unsubstantiated allegations related to personal conduct leveled in the dossier compiled by ex-British spy Christopher Steele. Uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi disagreed, tweeting that the memos are further proof of Trump's contempt for the rule of law. So you can decide which side of that um, observation you want to fall on. Um, uh, 
Former FBI Director James Comey in a memo recounting a, a meeting with President Trump at Trump Tower in January of 2017 explained it was the first time he had informed the president about reports involving him and, well, um, unsavory characters at the presidential suite at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow from the 20, uh, from about 2013. Well, these reports focus on the controversial but unverified and much discredited dossier that contained numerous salacious allegations about the president's connections to uh, Russia. Comey said he wanted to tell the president about the reports obtained by CNN and didn't want Trump to get caught cold by the details. The Russians al- uh, allegedly had tapes involving him and others at the presidential suite at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow in 2013. Comey recalled in the memo, when informed, he said Trump was surprised if the media had the reports. He wondered why they hadn't gone with it. Comey replied that they would uh, get killed for reporting straight up from the source reports. Comey then told Trump that the stuff might be totally made up. Well, it goes on from there. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll wind through some of the stories that developed actually late last week and uh, earlier today as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll talk with Pastor Andy McQuitty, The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith in a Goliath World. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the man who police uh, believed gunned down four people at a Waffle House restaurant in Tennessee was arrested today, just over an hour after police officers admitted he led police on a chase in a stolen BMW days before the rampage. Travis Reinking, 29, was taken into custody just after 1 p.m. Eastern time, according to the Nashville Metro Police Department. Speaking to reporters at a news conference earlier today, he was arrested in a wooded area near Old Hickory Boulevard in Hobson Park, not far from his home, his apartment. A citizen tip led to the arrest of the suspect who'd been on the run in the area since early Sunday morning. Authorities said they followed him onto a pathway in a wooded area where an officer saw his face and confirmed his identity. The officer ordered Reinken to the ground uh, the, and uh, official said he did so immediately. He was taken to a police precinct where he requested a lawyer, refused to make any statements. He was then taken to a hospital to be checked out and will later be transported to jail and booked on four counts of criminal homicide. He was wearing a backpack at the time of the arrest, which law enforcement said contained a semi-automatic weapon, ammunition, a holster, and a flashlight. Earlier in the day, authorities disclosed that he had stolen the BMW from a dealership in Brentwood on Tuesday and led the authorities on a chase before they lost him in heavy rush hour traffic on that day. Well, Metro Nashville Police Spokesman Don Aaron, he told reporters that uh, that police officers chased the vehicle but then opted to track the car via GPS device, apparently not very successfully. The vehicle was recovered the same day in Reinken's apartment complex in neighboring, uh, neighboring Antioch. Uh, he said the authorities didn't know his identity at the time since he didn't provide identification at the dealership before taking the vehicle. They had no idea who the man was, only where the, the car, what it was, and where it uh, had gone. Uh, the police uh, chief said uh, the shooter had exhibited mental instability and may still have the handgun. Aaron also said a civilian found a soft laptop case on Sunday night near a truck stop along Interstate 24, brought it home with him. Police said the person found a handwritten ID card with Travis uh, Reinking on the bag. Well, authorities believe that he was in that area on Saturday night, but aren't sure if the laptop case wound up in the area before or after the shooting. Well, the uh, police officer also said a report of shots fired on 
Monday near a police uh, staging area was not related to the search for the shooter at the uh, Waffle House. Well, the 29-year-old who was naked during the shooting, except uh, for a green uh, jacket and assault, rif- uh, assault rifle, rather, may have mental issues. More than 160 Nashville police officers were joined by officers from the Tennessee Highway Patrol, the FBI, ATF, and the search for the shooter, who was also added to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation's top 10 most wanted list. Well, Ryan King proved to uh, the busy restaurant, uh, uh, rather drove to the restaurant on Sunday, killed two people in the parking lot before entering and continuing to fire, according to police, with his AR-15 rifle, either jammed or the clip was empty. The customer disarmed him um, in a a scuffle. Four people were also wounded before the gunman fled, throwing off his jacket. A police statement said that um, uh, two uh, of the individuals were killed outside the restaurant. Another was fatally shot inside and the fourth wounded inside later died at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. They were all in their 20s. The shooter has a history of run-ins with police, including uh, one telling uh, the police officers that music star Taylor Swift had been stalking him. So he was someone that they... Uh, that they were aware of, but certainly did not anticipate uh, this encounter. In fact, uh, his guns were uh, taken from him at one point following uh, a run-in with the police, and it's believed that it's possible his father uh, returned the AR-15 to him at some point, which means he may be in some significant trouble as well. And as mentioned, there was a hero that stopped the shooter at the Waffle House by grabbing the barrel of that AR-15 during a brief pause, either when the gun was jammed or Um, The uh, clip had been emptied. Then in Toronto, Canada, police officers nabbed a suspected driver who plowed into a group of people on a crowded city street this afternoon, leaving nine people dead. Sixteen people have been injured, according to the deputy police chief. They confirmed the arrest of the suspect, which came just minutes after news of the incident broke. The van involved in multiple pedestrians struck in the uh, Young and Finch area of Toronto has been located and the driver arrested. Toronto police tweeted the identity of the driver has not been or had not at that time been released. Well, police officers initially said eight of the 10 people were hit near the uh, intersection mentioned a moment ago, just before 1.30 p.m. A nearby hospital tweeted that it had seven patients. After striking the pedestrians, the driver sped off. Photos from the scene of the collision showed pedestrians attempting to help people on the ground in multiple bodies covered by sheets. A witness who identified himself as Nick said that he was studying when he saw the truck flash by in the area, he said he witnessed a few people pass away in front of him as others screamed. Another who witnessed the incident said that the van was speeding down the street before it uh, mounted the curb and plowed into people. He started down uh, the sidewalk, crumbling down on people one by one and made the point that the, the uh, driver seemed to be intentional in his effort to uh, hit people and either injure or kill them. And that investigation is ongoing. Well, Mike Pompeo, President Trump's pick for Secretary of State, barely avoided a rare rebuke today from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee after unexpected last-minute drama. Well, the panel had deadlocked on a party-line vote after Georgia Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson, who'd been expected to vote for Pompeo, missed the committee meeting because of a funeral. But the committee then voted favorably on his nomination after Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons, who opposed Pompeo, agreed to vote present instead of no because of 
Isaacson's situation. Well, the final tally was 11 to 9. With one present, Isaacson was allowed to vote by proxy. Despite the committee drama, Pompeo still uh, appears poised to secure the necessary 51 votes for confirmation from the entire Senate, and three red state Democrats also saying they will support him. Indiana Democratic Senator Joe Donnelly, who was the the latest Democrat to announce his support, saying on Monday on Twitter that Pompeo is capable of advancing U.S. interests and leading the State Department. He follows Democratic Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, who both are facing tough re-election battles in backing Pompeo. After meeting with Mike Pompeo, discussing his foreign policy perspectives, considering his distinguished career uh, as CIA director and his career in public service, I will vote to confirm Mike Pompeo to be our next Secretary of State, Manchin said earlier today. There had been uncertainty ahead of uh, the committee vote today after signaling uh, they could oppose Pompeo and committee. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Arizona Senator Jeff Flake both announced Monday they would vote for him. After calling continuously for weeks for Director Pompeo to support President Trump's belief that the Iraq war was a mistake and that it's time to leave Afghanistan today, I received confirmation the Director Pompeo agrees with at real uh, Donald Trump, uh, Paul went on to say. Well, Flake had been uh, undecided, but told reporters ahead of the committee meeting that he would support Pompeo. Pompeo, of course, is a former Republican congressman from Kansas who has been serving as director of CIA. All Democrats on the panel said they would vote against him, although they voted unanimously in favor of him for the position he currently holds. Meanwhile, President Trump celebrated the developments, saying, I heard Rand Paul went, yes, he's a good man, the president told reporters. I said he'd never let us down. He's a good man, end quote. Earlier, the president lashed out at the uh, obstructionists who oppose Pompeo calling for more Republicans to be elected to the Senate. Uh, Trump uh, has, uh, President Trump has already entrusted Pompeo with high-level diplomacy, sending him to North Korea over Easter weekend to meet with the uh, rogue nation's leader, Kim Jong-un, according to the White House, in preparation for meetings that are expected sometime in June. The president said on social media a good relationship was formed during the, that uh, meeting. But Democratic um, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, the Foreign Relations Committee's ranking member, has accused Pompeo of a lack of transparency over the North Korea visit. I don't expect diplomacy to be negotiated out in the open, but I do expect for someone who is the nominee by the Secretary of State, when he speaks with the committee leadership and is asked specific questions about North Korea, uh, to share some insights about such a visit. Well, with the leaks that we've seen, seen the sort of sieve of information that's that's uh, leaked, I can understand why that would not have been the case. Nonetheless, it looks like he will be confirmed by the full Senate. Um, that is what is currently being expected. Well, the Democratic Party on Friday filed a multi-million dollar federal lawsuit against the Trump campaign officials, the Russian government and WikiLeaks alleging a widespread conspiracy to tilt the 2016 election in Donald Trump's favor. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Pastor Andy McQuitty. He's the author of The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith in a Goliath World. That's coming up at about uh, quarter after the hour, second hour. Well, the Democratic Party on Friday filed a multi-million dollar federal lawsuit against Donald Trump's uh, campaign officials, the Russian government, WikiLeaks, alleging a widespread conspiracy to tilt the 2016 election in Donald Trump's favor, calling it an all-out assault on our democracy, even though it's 
technically a constitutional republic that has democratic elections. The Democratic National Committee uh, filed the civil suit in federal district court in Manhattan. The suit amounts to another legal broadside related to the 2016 race on top of the special counsel's ongoing Russia probe and the FBI raid on Trump's personal attorney last week. The conspiracy constituted an act of previously unimaginable, unimaginable treachery, the campaign of the presidential nominee of a major party in league with a hostile foreign power to bolster its own chance to win the presidency, the suit, uh, the suit states. Now, President Trump fired back hours later via Twitter, calling the suit good news. Just heard the campaign w- uh, was sued by the obstructionist Democrats. He tweeted, this can be good news in that we will now counter for the DNC uh, server that they refused to give to the FBI, the Debbie Wasserman Schultz servers and documents held by the Pakistani mystery, uh, mystery man and Clinton emails, end quote. Well, during the 2016 president campaign, Russia launched an all-out assault on our democracy, and it found a willing and active partner in Donald Trump, said the DNC chair, Tom Perez. Well, the new suit claims that Trump's campaign officials worked in tandem with the Russian government and its military spy agency to bring down Hillary Clinton by hacking into the computer networks of the DNC and spreading stolen material. Now, the Mueller investigation has has revealed no such thing, and unless there's some source not yet known, uh, the The suit goes on to say during the 2016 presidential uh, campaign, Russia launched an all-out assault on our democracy. Well, the suit names several Trump campaign aides who met with Russian nationals during the campaign, including son-in-law Jared Kushner, campaign chair Paul Manafort, and uh, campaign deputy Rick Gates. Um, The suit also claims that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange shared the defendant's common goal of damaging the Democratic Party in advance of the election. The suit states Russia, using uh, WikiLeaks, would uh, disseminate information stolen from the DMC at times. Uh, when it would uh, best suit the Trump campaign. Well, Brad uh, Parscale, who's the campaign manager for Donald Trump uh, for President Inc., slammed the suit as frivolous and predicted it would eventually be dismissed, but would be a helpful campaign fundraising tool in the meantime. He said this is a sham lawsuit about a bogus Russian collusion claim uh, filed by a desperate, dysfunctional and nearly insolvent Democratic Party. In a written statement, he went on to say, with the Democrat conspiracy theories against the president's campaign evaporating as quickly as the falling, uh, rather failing DNC fundraising, they're sunk uh, to a new low to raise money, especially among small donors who have abandoned them. Trump has so- uh, strongly and repeatedly denied colluding with the Russians. The Mueller investigation goes on, and the litigious uh, society we live in is um, acting out in ways we've not seen before. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez, he said on Sunday morning, futures that potential major irregularities exist at the State Department. Another pending investigation. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Nunez says on Sunday that his review of FBI and Justice Department electronic communication documents shows no intelligence was used to begin the investigation into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia during the 2016 election. Now, again, he's saying the documents show no intelligence Uh, was in fact used to begin that uh, investigation. He said, and I'm quoting, we now know that there was no official intelligence that was used to start this investigation. We know that Sidney Blumenthal and others were pushing information into the State Department. So we're trying to piece all that together, and that's why we continue to look at the State Department. 
Um, he was speaking to Maria Bartiromo on Sunday Morning Futures. Uh, the Republican out of California cited the Five Eyes Agreement as a way of knowing no intel was used. The United States, along with Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand make up the Five Eyes, or countries that share intelligence in a more trusted fashion than other arrangements like NATO, particularly due to years of trust and a common language. We are not supposed to spy on each other's citizens, and it's uh, worked well, he said, and it continues to work well. And we know it's working well because there was no intelligence that passed through the Five Eyes channel to our government. And that's why we had to see the original communication. Well, the California Republican said he is now investigating the State Department due to signs of major irregularities and an effort to figure out how information about former Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos, who reportedly met with a foreign policy uh, expert and Cambridge professor with connections to the CIA and Britain's MI6, uh, MI6 in London in 2016 was obtained by the FBI. We know a little bit about that because uh, it uh, because of what some of the State Department officials themselves have said about that. Uh, he and he added that we have to make sure that our agencies talk and they uh, they work out problems. We have to make sure that they don't spy on either American citizens or that we are not spying on British citizens. Well, it goes on from there. Yet another investigation that uh, diverts attention away from the people's business in Washington. Well, one thing that is uh, captured people's attention is the pending meeting between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un in um, North Korea. Well, President Trump's upcoming meeting there uh, with uh, North with uh, d- the dictator there uh, may appear to be a-, a breakthrough between two leaders who openly talk about nuclear war in 2017. However, uh, Fred Lucas points out that national security experts are cautioning against expecting too much from an historic meeting that still has no publicly confirmed date and may have less defined agenda than similar such meetings between heads of states. Now, uh, they haven't worked all that well in the past. Perhaps something different might work, but there's uh, every reason to be skeptical. The meeting likely will be in late May or early June, based on what Trump has said. Kim Jong-un himself, he created new buzz on Saturday when he announced that North Korea's attempt to perfect nuclear weapons is complete and that his nation no longer needs to test its weapons capacity. Trump first tweeted late Friday uh, a message from Kim Jong-un. North Korea will stop nuclear tests and launches of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Also will shut down a nuclear test site in the country's northern side to prove the vow to suspend nuclear tests, progress being made for all. Now, one thing that seems to have been overlooked is the fact that we've already perfected the technique. The tests are ending, not because um, we uh, are making some sort of concession, but because we think we already know everything we need to know. We perfected the uh, the process. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but that's what Kim himself Uh, said in creating that buzz. Well, there are some questions that uh, are already in place that need to be in place before the uh, surprise development uh, was announced. And according to experts, as uh, Trump and Kim meet, um, there are some things that need to be asked. For example, what's uh, what's different this time around? Uh, This won't be the first negotiation between the two countries, but it will be the first bilateral meeting between the president of the United States and North Korean leader, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, or soon-to-be CIA Director, uh, secret Easter visit there, uh, to meet with Kim Jong and other North Korean officials was a surprise, but doubts remain on whether the upcoming Trump meeting uh, between the uh, the two will achieve a breakthrough. 
uh, senior research fellow for Asian studies, Bruce Klingerner, uh, points out Trump has abandoned the usual U.S. diplomatic playbook calling for a bottom up approach in what diplomats would first attain a carefully crafted agreement with North Korea prior to deploying the president for final signature. So this is uh, sort of turning things up on its head. And he goes on to say, and this is Mr. Klingner, to prevent a repeat of previous failed diplomatic attempts to denuclearization, the U.S. should insist on detailed agreement texts that clearly delineate all sides' requirements. Previous um, efforts relied on vague texts to allow achieving an agreement, but allowed allowing differing interpretations of responsibilities. The U.S. should also insist on rigorous verification requirements, such as those achieved during arms control treaties with the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Those things are not in place this time around. Uh, the president tweeted in response, funny how all the pundits that couldn't come close to making a deal on North Korea are now all over the place telling me how to make a deal. Well, there's no deal being uh, having been made yet. Yet either there's just a meeting schedule that may or may not take place as the president made announcement uh, earlier uh, in the day that unless uh, Kim Jong-un makes certain concessions that the the meeting won't take place. Now, what those might end up being and what form that agreement might take, we don't still we don't yet know. The question number two, what's the deal? We'll talk about it when we come back again, anticipating the president's meeting with Kim Jong-un at some point in the later, uh, latter part of May or early June. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, looking forward to a conversation with uh, Pastor Andy McQuitty. His book is titled The Way to Brave. Really well done. Shaping a David faith and a Goliath world. So where did David get the strength, the courage to confront that giant in that confrontation when he was just a teenager? Well, as uh, Pastor McQuinty points out, it didn't just happen on that day. He had a surge of of uh, courage that appeared and surprised himself. He was prepared. And uh, the book really focuses on how that preparation took place and how it applies to us as we are anticipating the challenges that we may face. That's coming up at about a quarter after the hour, hour number two. Well, the president is uh, meeting with the um, leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and there are some questions that need to be addressed before that happens. Now, this isn't news to anyone who's actually involved in making those negotiations, but what's the deal is one of those questions. The president expressed some enthusiasm last Wednesday during a press conference at his Mar-a-Lago estate about uh, the meeting with the North Korean dictator, tentatively set for tentatively set for May or, or uh, early June, saying, I hope to have a very clear uh, a very successful meeting. Um, I think uh, if uh, I think that it's a meeting that is not going to be fruitful, we're not going to go. If the meeting when I'm there is not fruitful, I will respectively leave the meeting and we'll continue uh, what we're doing or whatever it is that we'll continue. I'm quoting. Uh, but something will happen. So I will, I will like always remaining flexible uh, and will remain flexible here, end quote. But the meeting could be risky given the rapidness with which it came together. Um, according to the state, uh, former State Department Foreign Service agents and counterterrorism official with the United Nations, pointing out that when Nixon went to China, everyone knew what to expect and it was uh, well planned. He's now a professor of national security at the University of New Haven. And he told the Daily Signal, if this meeting fails, there is no place to go. When I would uh, engage in a meeting with another diplomat, if it fails, we could uh, go 
an, a level higher. Well, he also said that he's skeptical North Korea would give up its nuclear arsenal, which it has not said it will do, but that the meeting between the leaders would have, a, have uh, to produce a broad framework up front and allow details to be hammered out later, which is usually done before the president meets with another leader. This time it's the other way around. This would mean a peace treaty, perhaps initially between North Korea and South Korea, with the United States signing on once it could uh, verify denuclearization. Uh, which Kim Jong-un has never said he intends to do, a reduction in sanction on North Korea, a mechanism for verification and so on, a calendar for these goals. Um, we don't know yet what um, what will be agreed upon before the meeting and what will be discussed during the meeting. Another question, what prompted North Korea to negotiate at last? Now, uh, North Korea is not um, new to uh, making promises that it has no intention of keeping, but tough talk played some role in prompting the negotiation. George Mason University's uh, Jaffer says because the administration's tough North Korea policy, the Kim regime might rightly view the United States as actually having a credible threat to use uh, the military, unlike prior administrations on both sides of the aisle. And that may force them to make a more realistic deal that's in America's national security favor. He also served as the uh, White House and Justice uh, in the White House and Justice Departments, uh, just speculating on what may have prompted the North Koreans to negotiate this time around. The maximum pressure campaign by the U.S. has been effective. Uh, another um, a speaker before the House panel uh, pointed out and that sanctions have increased the price of gas, rice, other commodities in North Korea, reduced oil imports by one third, banned more than 90 percent of North Korea's exports to United Nations countries. So it has had an, an impact. China doesn't believe a collapse of the communist North Korean regime is in China's best interest. Uh, and while the world's second largest economy could do more, it's made significant steps in working with the United States. So there's a lot at play here. This perfectly fits into a larger strategy, says another observer, uh, James Carafano. The pundits that are criticizing the meeting are the same pundits who said Trump was going to start World War III. This continues maximum pressure and offers an off-ramp uh, for North Korea. Finally, what uh, what are the lessons that we can learn from history that might inform this uh, meeting as well? The lessons stretch a long way back. Um, not all of them are particularly useful, but they do give us some indication of what might happen. The United States has made mistakes there, going back to the early uh, part of 1905 when it agreed to Japanese dominance of the country. In 1950, the U.S. drew a defense perimeter that excluded Korea and Taiwan. Uh, this played a role in North Korea's decision with Soviet and Chinese support to invade the South that year, uh, which led to the Korean War. Well, more recently, the North Korean uh, regime didn't comply with eight previous agreements pertaining to nuclear weapons. Eight previous agreements. There are plenty of reasons to be concerned by this so-called breakthrough, says Frank Gaffney. He's the president of the Center for uh, Security Policy, a national security think tank, and a great resource if you're looking for information on foreign policy. He goes on to say, I find it difficult to believe that after three generations of sociopathic megalomaniacs, this regime would give up its nuclear arsenal for any amount of concessions. The U.S. could uh, pull out of South Korea and give still more money and food and North Korea would still cheat. Well, the most significant past agreements viewed as a breakthrough at the time uh, came in 1994. That's when North Korea agreed to freeze its plutonium weapons program in exchange for light water nuclear reactors, heavy fuel and eventual normalization, normalized relationship rather with the United States. However, the North Koreans continued uranium enrichment to produce the raw materials for nuclear weapons. The U.S. and North Korea ended that agreement and framework in 2002. So lots of questions uh, preceding the meeting and certainly during and after.
Well, the Supreme Court, as we mentioned last week, has some pretty interesting and significant cases. It's hearing in this uh, final uh, portion of uh, this session. Should online retailers have to collect sales taxes for states? Well, that's the central question in South Dakota versus Wayfair. It's a case dealing with the state's attempt to force out-of-state retailers to collect sales taxes when its residents um, make a purchase online, even if Wayfair, or for that matter, other retailers, don't have an office in that state. Well, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, last week about whether it should overturn Quill Corporation versus North Dakota. It was a decision made back in a ruling back in 1992. It forbade states from requiring mail order retailers to collect a state's sales tax if they don't have a physical presence within that state, like a store or employees. Well, lots of states complain that they're losing out on millions of tax dollars and lost sales revenue uh, given the rapid growth of online sales. South Dakota passed a law directly challenging the Quill case by requiring out-of-state retailers to collect sales tax if they sell more than $100,000 in goods or make uh, more than 200 transactions. Well, that led to the current case against Wayfair, Overstock.com, and Newage, uh, which all refused to comply with that law. Well, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Tuesday. Some of the key points and exchanges, isn't this a problem Congress could solve? That was a question, a persistent theme in the oral arguments uh, and a concern that Congress, not the court, is the proper branch of government to address this dramatic um, technological and social change that's uh, taken place in our increasingly um, interconnected economy. Justice Anthony Kennedy, he described the situation in Direct Marketing Association versus Broll, another case, and said there are two options. Let's say option A is eliminate Quill and states can do whatever uh, they want with respect to retroactive liability and with respect to the minimum number of sales that are required in the state in order for the sales to be uh, taxed in order to require them to collect the tax, referring to Wayfair or some of the retailers. Option B is a congressional scheme that deals with uh, all of these problems if those are the only two options which is preferable. Well, the response uh, that the first option is better because Congress has had 26 years to address this issue, and it's not Congress, but it's the court's decision that is striking down our state statutes. Well, Justice Elena Kagan, she responded that Congress has been aware of this very prominent issue for years and has chosen not to do something about it. Doesn't that make the state's bar higher to surmount? Well, the... uh, Attorney uh, replied that since the Quell case involves interpretation of a constitutional provision, the court needs to act. And although sometimes the activity of this court will spur Congress to act, in this instance, it hasn't. Well, Justice Stephen Breyer, he apparently didn't like the uh, Jack Lee response, cutting in, no, no, but the word constitutional is not magic. The reason that we say we are more willing to overturn a constitutional case is because Congress can't act. But here they can act. So the first question was whether or not it's the role of the court or the Congress to make this decision. And uh, a decision by the court in any event is expected sometime early this summer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back after news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Later this hour, in fact, next segment, we'll talk with Pastor Andy McQuitty. He's the author of The Way to Brave, Shaping a David's Faith in a Goliath World. The book is published by Moody and he'll join us in our next couple of segments. So I hope you can stick around. Well, we learned earlier today, just before the program began, that former President George Herbert Walker Bush has been hospitalized 
hospitalized. That's one day after his wife Barbara's funeral, according to the family spokesperson. He was hospitalized um, after an infection he contracted spread to his blood. President Bush has uh, was admitted to Houston Methodist Hospital yesterday morning after he contracted an infection that spread to his blood. The spokesman said in a statement, he is responding to the treatments, appears to be recovering. We will issue additional updates as events warrant. The former first lady, of course, died on April 17th at the age of 92, shortly after her family announced that she was in failing health and would decline further medical treatment in favor of comfort care. There were no details of her specific health problems. George Herbert Walker Bush, 93, reportedly was broken hearted over the loss of his beloved Barbara and was said to have held her hand all day. He was at her side when she died, his chief of staff said. The former president was hospitalized last April for two weeks due to a mild case of pneumonia. Earlier in 2017, he was hospitalized for 16 days, also to be treated for pneumonia. He was temporarily placed on a ventilator, was uh, treated in the intensive care unit where he is now in intensive care. His wife also was in the hospital around the same time to treat a case of bronchitis. He also required medical care in 2015 in Maine after uh, falling at home and breaking a bone in his neck in April or rather December of 2014 for about a week for shortness of breath. He spent Christmas 2012 in intensive care for bronchitis-related cough and other issues. The 41st president uses a wheelchair and an electric scooter for mobility after developing a form of Parkinson's disease, and he has required hospital treatment multiple times in recent years for breathing problems. He served as president, for those of you who weren't around at the time, from 1989 to 1993, and as vice president under Ronald Reagan in 1981 to 1989. He also served as a congressman and as the director of the CIA. Again, uh, former President George Herbert Walker Bush hospitalized one day after the funeral of his beloved Barbara. Keep he and his family in your prayers, if you will. Well, you might remember that caravan that the mainstream media, the Mexican officials, uh, said was no longer heading to the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, first of all, it was headline news, and then it just sort of drifted off. Well, they've arrived at the U.S. border. The story of the marching caravan, some 1,500 refugees strong, was all over the news for a week. And the mainstream media breathlessly covered the plight of the refugees who uh, were making their way to the United States to seek entry. But the story disappeared as outlets reported the caravan was no longer heading to the border. Well, the first 50 Central American migrants in that caravan that set out from southern Mexico in late March, they have arrived. They've reached the United States border, now secured with the help of National Guard personnel sent by President Donald Trump. Uh, reportedly on Friday. Well, since peaking at around 1,500 people, the migrant caravan has dwindled under pressure from the president and Mexican migration authorities who vowed to separate those migrants with a right to stay in Mexico from those who did not. Some of those migrants began arriving in the uh, Mexican border city of Tijuana on Wednesday. They requested asylum in the United States, for which some are entitled. Since yesterday, some began to, and this is from uh, last week, some began to cross into the United States to turn themselves in from Tijuana and request asylum. Uh, More of the uh, migrants will do the same as expected. Uh, They had originally uh, expected some 2,000, but uh, that number has dwindled somewhat. Uh, More are making their way to the border to seek asylum. Some will be granted, others will not. When the caravan crossed the Mexican-Guatemalan border last month, group leaders praised Mexican officials for stepping aside. Refugee caravan knocking down border yesterday in uh, uh, this uh, particular area. Immigration agents abandoned the post when they knew they were coming. The people celebrated this first little victory, they said on Facebook. And while Mexico said at uh, at 
uh, at the time that it doesn't uh, make immigration decisions for the United States or any other nation. President Trump said Mexico does make decisions that affect the United States, saying that Mexico is doing very little, if not nothing, at stopping people from flowing into Mexico through their southern border and then into the United States. They laugh at our dumb immigration laws. They must stop the big drug and people flows, or I will stop their cash cow. NAFTA need wall, Trump tweeted back on the 1st of April. Well, um, the story is not really being covered now, but those numbers are making their way to the border or have done so, and whether or not they'll be admitted uh, remains to be seen. Again, they're seeking, uh, many are seeking asylum. Well, Tuesday, April 24th, that's tomorrow, is the deadline to register to vote here in Oregon for the May 15th, 2018 primary election. This is also the deadline to change your party affiliation. Well, there are several registration options. Uh, register online no later than 11.59 p.m. Tuesday, tomorrow night. The online option is available to those who, uh, with a valid Oregon driver's license, DMV-issued identification card, or learner's permit. You can submit a voter's registration form to the elections office by 5 p.m. Tuesday, tomorrow. Or you can mail a voter registration card to the elections office postmark no later than Tuesday, April 24th. So you can mail, but that postmark must must be on it. Well, new voters will uh, who will turn 18 on or before the May 15th uh, election day uh, may register by the 24th deadline and receive a ballot even if they're still 17 on the deadline date. And that's the deadline for registering. Primary elections are held so that members of a party can choose the party's candidate for vote. Only registered Democrats, Republicans and independents can vote to nominate candidates for their respective political parties. Other registered voters will receive a ballot with nonpartisan offices only. So if you want to register for a party, Uh, If you want to make sure that you can vote for the party that you are concerned with, or if you don't register as a partisan, you'll uh, receive questions on voter registration or or rather questions on issues that only relate to those who do not belong to Democrat, Republican or independent affiliate. So that is tomorrow by midnight and the three ways in which to uh, to register with a ceremony to to uh, dedicate the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, drawing closer, Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas has said at the uh, weekend his self-rule government will not allow the United States or any other country to move its embassy to the city. Now, what kind of threat might that be and how might he prevent it? One wonders. Well, in comments reported by the officials of the Palestinian Authority news agency, Wafa, Abbas said his government would fight President Trump's decision. Palestinians' uh, government will fight against Trump's decision and not let any country to move its embassy to Jerusalem until Palestine-Israel issue is resolved. He was quoted as telling a medical conference in Ramallah. From the outset, we have stated that East Jerusalem is the capital of our state and will be open to all religions to practice their rituals freely, Abbas said. He heads both the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO. In fact, while Palestinian leaders uh, in record in recent uh, decades, rather, have portrayed Jerusalem as central, non-negotiable demand, that is a relatively new position when the PLO, which uh, since 1975 has been recognized by the U.N. as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, drafted its founding charter half a century ago. The document contained not a single reference to Jerusalem. So this is a departure from the original charter. After the establishment of the uh, modern state 
state of Israel in 1948. A war launched by its Arab neighbors ended with Jerusalem divided. Israel controlling western portion, the Jordanians controlling the east, including the old city and Judaism's holiest site, the Temple Mount. Well, Jordanian control lasted until 1967 when Israel captured the whole city, reuniting it as its capital, a decision condemned and not recognized by the international community. Well, on May 14th this year, the 70th anniversary of the Gregorian calendar of Israel's independence, the U.S. government, in a break with international consensus, plans to hold an official ceremony opening its embassy in an existing U.S. consular facility, which straddles what was no man's land between Israeli and Jordanian lines. Uh, from 1948 to 1967. Well, Trump last December announced the decision to relocate the embassy from Tel Aviv and to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Next month's move will come 19 years after the deadline set in U.S. legislation for the United States to take just such a step. The 1995 Jerusalem Embassy Act, which passed by large majorities in the U.S. House and Senate, required the president to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem by May 31st, 1999, uh, failing which the State Department would uh, lose half of its funds appropriated for the acquisition and maintenance of building abroad. So there was a penalty for the State Department for failing to do so. Whether or not that was the case, um, instead, President Clinton and presidents since have uh, relied on six-month national security waivers to avoid complying. That will no longer be the case uh, in uh, on May the 14th when the U.S. Embassy will, in earnest, be moved to Jerusalem. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Pastor Andy McQuitty. His book, The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith in a Goliath World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest rightly says that the church needs courage to stand in faith against the spiritual giants of secularism and relativism. And in his new book, The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith for Today's Goliath World, Dr. Andy McQuitty, is a pastor of 35 years, reflects on the notable character of examples of bravery, including King David, Daniel, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Carrie Ten Boom, to name a few. Specifically, he focuses on how God prepared David with courage, with faith and humility to face his adversary, the giant Goliath. Uh, He has faced his own battlefield. In fact, uh, stage four colon cancer. He's a survivor focused on uh, he also focuses on the five keys uh, phrases that David uses to face and defeat Goliath. And we'll talk with him about that. We'll talk about David's extraordinary courage in Elah. Um, It wasn't a momentary surge. It was, in fact, um, a consistent expression of faith that was forged through long years of discipleship. Well, Pastor Andrew or Andy McQuitty is a graduate of Wheaton College and of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he earned his Doctor of Ministry degree. Uh, he has faithfully served as senior pastor to Irving Bible Church since 1987. He and his wife have five adult children and their grandparents of two grandchildren. He joins us today to talk about his book, The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith for Today's Goliath World. Pastor McQuitty, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. It's a pleasure to be with you. Boy, this is such a timely subject because we are facing challenges that, at least for us in this country, are unique. And we're not quite prepared uh, in how to respond. And your book really does give us not only some tools to respond well, but to help us have the right attitude in that process. Yes, that's the purpose of the book. And it springs out of a need for that that I 
saw in my own life and in the lives of my congregation here in the Dallas area, as we have entered into what I call post-Christendom America, uh, as I say to my people, we are not in Kansas anymore. We're no longer an entitled uh, faith and religion. Uh, In fact, uh, we're coming under increasing attack, and our religious liberty is being eroded. Uh, As we look at the four main uh, vessels of of culture, the media, uh, the entertainment industry, government, and the academy, I mean, all you have to do is watch the Oscars, and you'll find out what the world thinks about Christianity in America. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I I was going to say, I suppose we shouldn't be altogether surprised. We're sort of catching up with other parts of the world. But it is a challenge for us to make the adjustment uh, because we have had the luxury of having very little opposition and sort of a common agreement that certain basic biblical principles we embrace as a culture. Exactly. And I don't want people to fear the changes that are coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I really believe we have come to a about 250 years, a very unique window in human history yes. in America as, as Christians being, you know, not only welcome and free to practice our faith, but encouraged to do so and, and being trendsetters in the, in the country as far as our faith. But that's all over now, and I don't want people to be afraid of that because as wonderful as it has been to enjoy what I call the Pax Americana of mm. Christianity— um, it has it has made us, I think, a little bit lazy, and has caused a little bit of atrophy in our spiritual muscles. You refer to some of the other people in the world, our Christian brothers uh, in other countries, who have never experienced this Pax Americana, and you know they they look at us as we as we are kind of shaking in the knees a little bit with the the trends in America against uh, our faith and our values. And they, they must think that we're a little bit on the weak side, that we've uh, kind of fallen by the wayside. And I think we have in our faith. And that's why I wrote this book, is I believe that we need courage going forward, but we will only get courage if we approach life and approach the spiritual opposition in our culture in the way that God has trained all his people in every age to approach spiritual opposition. And so I go back to David, and I find out, Okay, what did, what did God do in David's life to make him brave in standing against the spiritual opposition and the physical opposition in his day? And that's how the book happened. Yeah. Now, we tend to look at the heroes of the faith as something like superheroes uh, without fully appreciating that they, like us, are flawed characters. They, like us, inherited sin nature. And so their lives are not a reflection of a, a perfect godly man or woman. You focus on the life of David as an example of bravery. And certainly we see that in his early days. But but why focus on his life? And what, what should we be looking for yeah. as we examine uh, someone who is very much like... Uh, Exactly. Uh, Feet of clay, even as the sweet singer of Israel, David was a flawed man. And uh, yet I went to him uh, as an example of how God creates courage in the heart and the soul of one of his children. I believe that David, though he was flawed, he did um, stand in in great courage against Goliath. And and my question uh, is, in opening the book and going back to his example was what made him courageous In what ways had God actually um, prepared David uh, to face the giant. I, I think it's wonderful that David went ahead and defeated the giant, 
But that's not even the main question in my book, is what did God do to prepare David? And, and so you go back to 1 Samuel 16 and 17, and, and I find there are five very clear ways that God prepared David to be brave. And those five ways that God prepared his Old Testament saint, David, to be brave are the same five ways, I contend, that he prepares Christians in the church in the 21st century in America to be brave. You know, and I appreciate so much you're making the the point that David didn't just have a surge of courage that carried him through uh, the a singular event, but this was something that he had been prepared for, that he was prepared for by virtue of what God had done in his life up to that point. And that gives me hope because most of us, you know, we our knees are shaking. We're not really, we don't see ourselves as noble characters. So let's talk about these five ways that God prepared him and in the same way uh, will prepare us for the challenges we may uh, face. Absolutely. Let me let me just take off the five ways that God prepared David, and then I'll go back and unpack them a little bit and yeah. apply them to the New Testament church. Uh, in First Samuel sixteen and seventeen, I find that, that that God called David. He called him very specifically to be king. Secondly, God anointed David. That is to say, he filled him with the Holy Spirit because that's what Old Testament anointing of prophets, priests, and kings represented. God called David, God anointed David, God broke David, broke his pride, broke his self-confidence, so that all of his, all of his confidence and, and all of his desire would be for God's glory and God's strength and not his own. He called David, he anointed David, he broke David, he tested David. Um, whenever David came up on the Valley of Elah that day and saw Goliath's diatribe against the God of Israel and King Saul and the people of Israel, he went to Saul and volunteered to fight the giant. And uh, Saul said, no, you can't. He'll tear you apart. And David objected, and he said, oh, but King, I have defeated the lion and the bear. Um, and in that way, God had tested him and prepared him, had deepened his faith. Uh, so that whenever he faced the ultimate giant, he was ready to go. It's like I say in the book, no self-respecting shepherd would ever volunteer to face a giant who had not already killed a lion mm-hmm. and a bear. So, so God called David. He uh, filled him with the Holy Spirit. He anointed David. He broke David of his pride so that his confidence would be in God's power. He tested David so that his faith would be strong. And finally, he trained David. He put David in a, in a years-long training system with a stone and a sling. As a young shepherd boy on the hills of Bethlehem watching his father's sheep, I, I've been on those hills, and all there is is rocks. Mm-hmm. You put a teenage boy with lots of time on his hands with nothing but rocks and a sling, he's going to fling a lot of rocks, and he's going to get very good at it. And David was very good at it. And uh, I think it was his, his, uh, his skill with the stone and the sling that also, with the other four elements, gave him courage. And so I ask in the book, okay, how do these five ways that God prepared David to face Goliath apply to us New Testament Christians 
in a post-Christendom America. I want to give you a chance to expound on that in a moment, but I do need to take a break. I know for many of us, God has called us. Okay, we recognize that. He's anointed us. He's given given us His Spirit. But when you get to that, God broke David and He breaks us. That's where it kind of gets, well, I'm not sure I I like that idea, where He tests us and, and trains us. And I think sometimes we're forgetful of the things that God has brought us through that are preparing us for those challenges. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'd like you to go deeper on what these five things mean for us in uh, in the church today. Again, we're talking with uh, Pastor Andy McQuitty. He's the author of The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith for Today's Goliath World. And don't we desperately need to understand how God works in and through us at a time like this? Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Pastor Andy uh, McQuitty. His book is titled The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith for Today's Goliath World. And he notes in the book that David's extraordinary courage in Elah wasn't a momentary surge of valor, but a consistent expression of faith that was forged through long years of discipleship. Now, when we, um, as we continue our conversation, let's go a little bit deeper in these five uh, specific assets that God uh, walked David through, that he prepared him for the confrontation that was to come, that we can learn from as we prepare for the challenges ahead for us? Yes. Well, uh, let me go, go from the very beginning. Uh, God called David when Samuel went in 1 Samuel 16 to anoint David the king and the successor to Saul. Uh, he called him as king. And David uh, knew what that calling meant. He knew what his job was. He knew what his mission was. As he was called to be king, that means he's the protector and the one who causes his people to flourish. So whenever he came up on Goliath that day, he had been called as king. He knew what his calling was to protect the people. And here's a giant threatening his people. So he knew what God wanted him to do. God wanted him to fight that giant. And I think David's certainty of his calling gave him courage in, in um, executing his calling. Uh, he filled him with the Spirit. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, only prophets, priests, and kings received the filling of the Spirit. Thankfully, in the New Testament, after Pentecost, we Christians, all of us have the indwelling paraclete who helps us and gives us courage. But David knew what his calling was. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. His pride had been broken. And as you pointed out, uh, Georgie, that that is the one that is the section in my whole book that everybody points at and says, <laughs> uh, uh, "Really? Uh, I'm not sure I like that." But but it's 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 very simple, you know. It says in the scripture in Proverbs 16, "Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall." And we know in the New Testament, First Peter says that uh, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So, you know, I, I think what we see in God's work in the lives of his people, both in Scripture and through history that he uses greatly, is that he first breaks them deeply so that their pride will not make him oppose them in, in, a, in a season when he actually wants to support them. So uh, the great F.B.I. Meyer writes these words, and I have this quote in the book, whatever it is that enables a soul whom God designs to bless to stand out against him, God will touch it. Hmm. Maybe the pride of wealth, of influence, affection, it will not be spared. God will touch it. Maybe something as natural as a sinew, but if it robs a man of spiritual blessing, God will touch it. That's what I mean by God broke David's pride. Um, we know from Scripture that David was a handsome young man. 
You know, he was very athletic. He was skilled. He he was he was like a star athlete back in his day, handsome young man. And I believe that God knew that David was susceptible to pride, the same kind of pride that was taking King Saul down ahead of him. God did not want that pride to take David down. And so he broke him. How did he break him? Um, I think David is the original Cinderella story in the Old Testament. Hmm. Why was David stuck up there with the sheep whenever Samuel came and ran all the other sons of Jesse by? Why did Jesse take all of his sons to the ball to meet the prince at, at, the, at the big coming out, which was the Battle of Elah, where Saul and all the armies were drawn up? He took his sons there, but left David behind, Cinderella, taking care of the sheep. Many Jewish historians believe that David was an illegitimate child. Perhaps that explains David's uh, mentioning in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. At any rate, it seems to me that David had been shunted off as, as an illegitimate child, isolated by his father from his family, and made to stay with the sheep. And I think that experience broke David's pride. You read the Psalms later and you see how he used those lonely nights alone with the sheep to meditate on the greatness of creation and the glory of God, and his own pride diminished. But God broke his pride so that whenever he came and he fought the giant right before they fought, uh, Goliath said to David, I'm going to take you, and this was pretty much like pro-wrestling pre, pre-match pre talk, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take you and feed you the birds of the year. And, of course, it was requisite that David respond with like verbiage, only David didn't. Saul said, I'm going to feed you the birds of the air. And David essentially said to him, the Lord whom I serve will feed you to the birds of the air. In other words, David's pride had been broken. His confidence was in the power of God. And that's what ultimately gave him the victory. So we have his brokenness, which actually made him strong. And, and, and you know, his testing with the lion and the bear that, that made him strong and courageous. Um, and, and, you know, I, I take that over into the New Testament, Georgine. You know, what about us as Christians? In the, in the, what is the role of testing to make our faith strong and deep? Um, I think largely in the American church, we have in our, in our uh, let's say, uh, very supportive culture up to this point of our faith, we've become rather um, resistant against God testing us. Instead of seeing God's test as coming to help us and drive our deep, uh, our faith deeper, we tend to see it as God's, you know, he's sitting down on the job. You know, you're not supposed to let this stuff happen to me, God. And, and, and yet we have, like James 1 in the New Testament, my brothers and sisters, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, do not resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realizing they come to test your faith and producing you the quality of true goodness. God tests us to help us and not to hurt us. And then the final section of the book, uh, after, after God's testing of us, is God's training of us. God made sure that David was trained in, a, in the weapon of his warfare, which for David was a stone and a sling. What is the only offensive weapon said to be given to the New Testament church and New Testament Christians? Well, obviously, Paul, Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, Spirit, which Mm -hmm. is what? The Word of God. I think God wants to train us in His Word. That is our weapon. And we're going to, to the extent that Christians reverse the trend of what I, as a pastor for almost 40 years now, 
consider to be a trend of deepening ignorance, even in the church, mm-hmm. of the Word of God. We've got to reverse that trend. We've got to be people of the book. We've got to appropriate the weapon of our warfare, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if we do, it will give us confidence. It will make us walk in the way of brave as well. Well, I love that. It's like David would uh, go to the battlefield and leave his sling and and bag of rocks behind. He disarms himself uh, if he goes to the battlefield without the things that that God had trained him in. And we so often do that very same thing. We leave the sword at home. Yeah. 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 Um, there's so much in the book to to be covered, and our time is is so short. Um, but you write that um, uh, that it well uh, that there are five. Let me see. You give a simple approach to knowing and living the Word of God with five uh, movements that you call the five R's, and helping us to to be better equipped to wield the weapon, the only one that we have been given. Yes, uh, really. I think that what we've lost in the church in America is a sense of discipline in understanding the Word of God and learning it and actually inculcating it into our life. Um, our older brothers and sisters in the faith over centuries and centuries practiced a way of reading the Scripture called Lectio Divina, which is basically just a, a way of, of divine reading of the Scriptures that helps us not only learn the facts about Scripture, but also apply the Scripture and live it out in our lives. And Lectio, as we teach it to our people in our church, uh, has these five R's, uh, and they're, they've been practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years. Reading, reading the text that we're studying, reflecting on the text, in other words, letting the Spirit of God say to you through those words what He wants you to know. Responding, that's the third R, turning your reflection into a short prayer of submission and confession of faith or of obedience. And then resting, taking, taking some time to, to stop working so hard thinking and just let the Spirit minister to you, and, and, and then bring it to the, the fifth R, which we call resolving. Resolving to live out the text as a personal word to the particular circumstances of your everyday life. Well, the book, well, uh, once you know, again, is... Uh... It's titled The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith for Today's Goliath World. There is so much more in the book than our conversation would reflect. It's published by Moody, and I would highly recommend, if you want to be prepared to face the challenges ahead and to learn what Scripture teaches us about how David, for example, was equipped, and others as well, uh, this is a great resource to do that. I wish we had more time, Pastor McQuitty, but thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure, Georgine. Thank you so much. God bless. Again, The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith for Today's Goliath World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I hope you had an opportunity to hear my conversation with Pastor Andy McQuitty. He's the author of The Way to Brave, Shaping a David Faith in a Goliath World. And we find ourselves in just that, a Goliath world. And he offered some examples, which you probably already know, of the challenges that we face, if we want to face, rather, if we want to faithfully uh, follow the uh, 
uh, the, the commands of Christ and uh, recognize that as something of a privilege. Well, a decorated army chaplain is now facing what his attorneys are calling a career ending punishment. We might ask, well, what has he done? Did he uh, violate a, a military command? Has he broken the rules? Has he broken the law? Has he bent the rules? Well, he explained to a soldier that he couldn't conduct a marriage retreat that included same sex couples. Well, the military investigation at Fort Bragg determined that Chaplain Scott Squires should be disciplined for his failure to include a lesbian couple in the Strong Bonds marriage retreat. Well, an investigator de- determined that he was uh, that he had rather discriminated against a soldier based on her sexual orientation. Well, when um, Chaplain Squires realized that he couldn't participate, he rescheduled the event to accommodate the lesbian couple with a chaplain who could oversee the retreat. So he made accommodation for them. He stepped away. But apparently that was not good enough. Well, the Army EO policy it states that no service will be denied to any member of the armed services regarding, uh, regardless of race, color, national origin, gender, religious affiliation, or sexual orientation. That's a report from the investigator. C.H. Squires should be reprimanded for his failure to include, name deleted, in the initial strong bonds retreat. Well, again, there was an effort made to provide an opportunity to participate in the retreat with someone uh, who could, in fact, provide what they were looking for, and he stepped away. First Liberty Institute, which is a religious liberty law firm representing the chaplain, said on the uh, Todd Starnes radio show earlier uh, last week, there is uh, more to that story. Chaplain Squires is endorsed by the Southern Baptist Convention's North American Missions Board. The Southern Baptists forbid its chaplains from facilitating marriage retreats that include same-sex couples. Well, according to a Southern Baptist memorandum released in 2013, NAMB-endorsed chaplains will not conduct or attend a wedding ceremony for any same-sex couple, bless such a union, or perform counseling in support of such a union, assist or support paid contractors or volunteers leading same-sex relational events, nor offer any kind of relationship training or repeat uh, retreat rather uh, on or off a military installation that would give the appearance of accepting the homosexual lifestyle or sexual wrongdoing, end quote. Well, had Chaplain Squires participated in the marriage retreat, he would have been uh, he would have risked losing his endorsement by the Southern Baptists. Likewise, the Army requires its chaplains to adhere to their endorsers' rules and religious tenets. So the Army actually requires that. Well, Chaplain Squires shouldn't have to his career ruined for following the rules of both his faith and the Army. That's a quote from First Liberty Institute attorney Mike Barry, uh, again speaking on the Todd Starnes radio show. Well, even more disturbing, the investigator found the chaplain had also committed discrimination by simply explaining his religious beliefs to the offended soldier. So by sharing your beliefs that may contrast with someone else's, um, he was uh, deemed by the investigator to be in violation. Uh, that could mean a chaplain can, um, can't even talk about their religious beliefs without being accused of discrimination. That would strip thousands of chaplains across our military of their most basic freedoms under the First Amendment, uh, the attorney representing the chaplain said. Well, Mr. Berry said federal law pr- protects the chaplains and prohibits the military from punishing any chaplain acting in accordance with his or her religious beliefs. Chaplains should not have to give up their First Amendment rights in order to serve, Berry also declared. As it now stands, Chaplain Squires is being punished by the Army for following the Army's own regulations. We'll follow this story as it um, develops, but he did make uh, provision for the uh, couple that wanted to participate in the the training, provided someone who would um, supply uh, uh, leadership for the training. Uh, But again, that was not good enough. Perhaps another example of 
um, how we need to be prepared for the challenges that lay ahead. And I appreciated what uh, Pastor McQuitty had to say about the attitude uh, that we move forward uh, with. And uh, that's something to keep in mind as these challenges and others uh, like them uh, arise. Well, taking a quick look at what's going on the remainder of this week here on the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, I am so honored to, to have with me in studio Alan Hotchkiss, who is the executive director of Africa New Life. And we are going to be hosting our annual Africa New Life radio. <laughs> We're going to give you an opportunity to learn more about what's happening in um, in uh, Rwanda, where Africa New Life uh, does its work. And you'll recall that Africa New Life has a connection uh, with Portland. In fact, it grew out of a seminary student from Rwanda here in Portland, attending Multnomah uh, Bible College at the time, now university. And so there's a, a, a very strong connection between Africa New Life and uh, the uh, Portland community. So we're going to talk with Alan Hotchkiss and others uh, tomorrow for our annual Radiothon, and you'll have an opportunity to help feed children in schools and uh, and outside of school. They're doing tremendous work. In fact, uh, when I was first in Rwanda, my first trip there many years ago, uh, we were um, connected with Africa New Life, and I remember very vividly the ministry at that time, the scope, the size of it, the numbers uh, that they were serving, and so on. I was there on the ground. Well, today they are serving uh, significantly more than they did in those early days, and we'll tell you more about that when he joins us for that Radiothon on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Melanie Springer Mock. She's the author of the book, Worthy, Finding Yourself in a World Expecting Someone Else. Um, God designs us in a particular way for his good purpose. And while we may not be able to see it and we may seem from our vantage point to be a misfit or not quite understand where we might prosper in our efforts to serve him well, we're going to talk with Melanie Springer Mock and be reminded of what Scripture has to say. Again, the book is titled Worthy, Finding Yourself in a World Expecting Someone Else. And then on Thursday, Ryan Anderson. This is an interview I've been hoping for for quite some time. James has been working on it. When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. It's published by Encounter. And of course, uh, Ryan Anderson is um, someone I always recommend. And if this is an issue, if this is a subject you want to be well versed in from a biblical perspective and how to respond in a way that reflects the character of Christ, um, this is a book that I would highly recommend. Again, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. The book is published by Encounter. It's uh, only been out for a very short period of time. He'll be with us on Thursday. So I'm looking forward to that. And then on Friday, we're just going to lighten things up. Now, it's going to be a bit of a challenge because my sidekick on Fridays is going to be uh, on vacation. So I'm going to be thrilled that uh, Clark is going to be out of the uh, the office for a period of time. Uh, but we're going to have some, despite his absence, we'll just try to soldier on and do the best we can. So that's coming up on Friday. I hope you will uh, stick around and join us uh, for that. Again, tomorrow we'll be talking with um, uh, Alan Hotchkiss, who is the director of Africa New Life, our annual radiothon. And by the way, you can go to kpdq.com and learn a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about. And if you know already that you'd like to uh, help give and support the work that they're doing in feeding children, uh, you can uh, find the, the tab at the top of the page, kpdq.com, and you can give as early as, well, right now. So check that out. Otherwise, we're going to spend the entire day here on KPDQ FM, giving you opportunities to learn more and to uh, to give to be a part of that solution so we're looking forward to it all right well clark hilton is today's engineer james blend is our producer and thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day and uh, once again happy belated birthday to clark hilton good night thanks for listening to the georgine rice show podcast 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.